You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Laura Greaves has more than 20 years' experience as a writer globally and across newspapers, magazines and books. However, it is not the accolades and awards that defines her success. The internal drive, coupled with a humbled perspective, was ingrained in Laura from a young age growing up in Adelaide and largely due to the unwavering support she received from her parents. Nonetheless, there were challenging times throughout Laura's formative years at high school, a phase that saw her as the victim of relentless schoolyard bullying. Developing a steely determination and resilience, Laura was able to overcome the challenging years, going on to secure a cadetship as a 17-year-old at The Advertiser. More recently, Laura has moved into writing novels and non-fiction pieces and is soon to publish her 10th book. Laura joins us virtually for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Laura, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Laura, you've had more than 20 years experience as a writer globally across newspapers, magazines and books. You've won a number of awards, but for you, that's still not the measure of success. Throughout your career, how have you defined success at a personal level? I think for me, the fact that this is my career <laughs> is really um, the, yeah, the pinnacle of, of success for me in terms of I keep writing books and my publisher keeps publishing them, which is amazing. And it's almost something I can't quite believe, to be honest. I mean, I do spend a lot of time kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and waiting for it all to magically go away. And certainly when COVID unfolded, I thought, oh, is this it? You know, will people stop buying books altogether? And is this the end of the world as I know it? But, you know, touch wood, they have bought another book from me since the whole pandemic began. So fingers crossed that continues. But I've wanted to be a writer literally my entire life. I mean, I cannot actually remember ever wanting to do anything else except for a very brief period when I was about 16. And for some reason, I decided I wanted to be an occupational therapist. And my parents actually said to me, like, you might imagine parents would be all for this because it's a more stable kind of um, career, but they actually said, don't, don't be ridiculous. Like you're a writer. That's what you do, (laughs) you know? Um, And they were quite right. Um, But yeah, I've literally been writing stories, poems, scribbling plays, all sorts of things since I was four, five, six years old. So if you, if I could tell that little girl that this would be her actual job, um, I don't know. I always say she wouldn't believe me, but she probably would because she was pretty precocious and she was pretty determined. So yeah, that's the fact that this is my career is really, you know, what it's all about. I can't believe I get to do this job. It's amazing. And before this interview, Laura, you mentioned that writing for you, it's not just what you do. It it truly is who you are. Mm. Has that always been the case? I know you touched on that you always love writing, but Was it always all-encompassing in your life? Yeah, it really was. Um, And there have been times when I've really lamented that fact Um, because even after nine books um, and I've just sold my 10th and 20 years in journalism and all the rest of it, it's not always easy. Um, 
I, I'm sort of reluctant to say it's a hard job because it's certainly not like being down a coal mine or anything, but it's certainly taxing and it's challenging and it makes you kind of confront parts of yourself that would be much more convenient if they didn't come bubbling to the surface. Um, but I can't do anything else. Um, and I mean that literally and figuratively, like I have no other skills for one thing, <laughs> but also I can't, stop it. Um, and I, I think to myself, you know, I know people that are passionate about gardening, for example, or like you, I, you love cricket. And, you know, I know people that, um, you know, they, they play basketball or they, they're cyclists or they write songs. And I don't want to do any of that stuff. Like that would never occur to me to try any of those things, but this is the thing. Writing is the thing that just never goes away. And no matter what else I'm doing, there is always a part of me going, you should be writing. Um, and I just sort of feel like when it's got that much of a hold on you, you have to do it. You know, you can't not. Um, so yeah, it is, it, it is really who I am. And, you know, I don't really like saying that because I do have other facets and other interests, but um, this is the one thing I, I can't let go of or it won't let go of me. <laughs> I'm not sure what's the best way to put it, but it's in deep, that's for sure. You touched on the role and the support of your parents and that hugely uh, profound backing. You know, as you said, have, have parents support you in a, a creative industry is hugely important. Uh, you were born and raised in Adelaide. What was your early childhood like? Um, it was... I don't know. How, how would you sum it up? It's like, it was great. Um, you know, in many respects, um, my parents were divorced, but both of them, I lived with my mum, but my dad was always in my life. Um, they were both and are still both enormously supportive of me and pretty much everything I do. And I'm an only child. So I probably got, you know, maybe more interest and involvement and backing than perhaps um, someone from a multi-children family would have. Um, I was always very close to my grandparents. So even though I didn't have siblings, I always had a lot of um, familial support. Um, but then I also had challenges, um, particularly uh, through high school, I was bullied um, really badly. You know, it was quite torturous. It was from the first term of my first year in high school, literally up until the day I walked out at the end of year 12. Um, and they were pretty vicious. I mean, some of the things that they did and stuff that they kind of put me through, like certainly it was formative, like it definitely shaped who I am as a person and the way I look at the world. And that, that stuff is still there. Um, yeah. It's, you think you should be over it by the time you're 40, which I am now. Um, but that stuff, uh, it really affects you. And, um, there's a sort of degree of resentment there that I didn't get to have an entirely carefree kind of fun, freewheeling, um, adolescence. Um, and I certainly think that drove me to an extent. It probably more motivated me even more to, um, really succeed in my career and always, go after the things I wanted. Um, and I, I just think I learned at an early age that people will always criticize you, that, you know, people are always going to have opinions about what you do and they'll try to tell you that you're no good or that you won't achieve the things you want to achieve. And yeah, I had to, I had to learn very young that, um, you can't listen to those people. You've got to just 
crack on. <laughs> the the bullying for you, I can imagine, you know, very challenging and, and even traumatic. Did did it spark a sense of creativity in you, or did you find it actually inhibited the, that creativity? I mean, I was already creative, um, you know, through primary school, I had done kind of class newspapers and I'd written plays and made all my friends act them out. And we, I would perform little songs at assemblies and all that kind of stuff. So the creativity was always there. Um, I think if anything through that, I became more afraid to share any of that. Um, because the nature of the harassment that I experienced was that everything I said was stupid and everything was wrong and I was just an embarrassment. And so I learned um, that in order to try to avoid that kind of attention and that kind of scrutiny, I just learned to try and fold in on myself almost and, and make myself as small as I could and just try to be invisible and unobtrusive. So for quite a while there, I did, um, I mean, all of that stopped anything to do with performance or publicly sharing my work went away. I mean, I couldn't have thought of anything worse than being at the center of attention in that way, because it was just more things to be attacked. And I was so protective, I suppose, of my work even then, not that I thought I was brilliant or, you know, by any stretch, but it was mine, you know, and it was private and, um, I wanted to keep it for myself. Although that said, I did write a couple of, um, short stories for my yearbooks, my high school yearbooks. Um, and I read back now and like, they're very, shall we say, heavily influenced by the things I was going through. Like one of them was about this girl who was being bullied and discovered that, um, she had miraculously developed this magical power whereby anything she said happened. So like if she told someone to drop dead, for example, they would. <laughs> and at the time I just thought, oh, isn't this an interesting kind of um, supernatural twist for a story? But obviously with hindsight, I can think, oh, wow, I was expressing some stuff. <laughs> and did you feel like you were getting the support from the school, from the teachers or for them, was it out of sight, out of mind? 1000% not helpful, no support in any way possible. Um, in fact, it's really something that made me angry then and still makes me angry now, to be honest. Um, they just had no idea. They couldn't, I mean, they, it, like, it was totally foreign to them that this would ever happen. Um, and they were terrible at dealing with it. I mean, at one point, me and the kind of chief mean girls that were making my life miserable were dragged before our school counselor. And I was made to apologize to them um, for antagonizing them. And because the whole thing started because they started spreading rumors that I'd been kind of saying things about other kids behind their backs, which I hadn't been doing, but I was made to apologize for doing that. Um, the school's thinking, I guess, was that, um, if I apologized, it would all go away. But of course what happened was they then had my admission of guilt and all it did was just make it a thousand times worse. So eventually my mom, who was also at a loss, I mean, she went to school in the sixties, you know, the kind of stuff I was going through in the mid nineties was just another world. Um, so she and my dad did their best, but they were really out of their depth handling it as well. Um, Eventually she marched into the principal's office and said, if you don't do something to fix this situation, I will take my daughter out of this school. 
And this was a huge step because we'd actually moved house in order that I could go to this school because it had such a great reputation. So I guess that shocked them or, or spurred them into action because um, I was in year eight, which in South Australia is the first year of high school. Um, it was almost the end of that first year and I was moved up to year nine. So I did the last term of the year in year nine and then next year I went into year 10. So my school was so big that it was split over two campuses. So by accelerating a year, I was on a different campus away from the bullies, um, at least for a couple of years until they came over to the, to the campus that I was on. But yeah, that, the short answer is no, the school was thoroughly unsupportive. And if I hadn't had some really wonderful friends, I mean, my best friend, we're still best friends to this day. I wouldn't have got through it without her. I wouldn't have got through it without my parents taking charge um, yeah, and I still see schools these days being thoroughly ineffective in managing bullying, which is a thousand times worse now because there's digital, you know, means of torturing people. <laughs> so yeah, it's something I'm pretty passionate about and I hope that way more can be done because it just doesn't seem to be, it's not a drop in the ocean really in terms of what kids are going through. As you touched on there, this day and age, not that it's, um, necessarily any better or worse because it's still bad from what happened in the past but is that there's that extra layer through social media and effectively being um you know vulnerable 24 7 what what do you think is the motivation for the bullier like what why why do they take these actions that are so belittling and um offensive to someone else and really um putting someone else in a horrible position for their own betterment what do you feel is the, that motivation that's such an interesting question. And I wish I knew the answer. I mean, when I was going through it myself, you know, 25 years ago, the common rhetoric was, Oh, they're jealous, you know, and if you ignore them, they'll go away and don't rise to it and they'll leave you alone, which um, spoiler is not true. Ignore them. They'll just go harder until they get a reaction out of you. Um, as for jealousy, I don't know. I mean, I certainly at that point, my self-esteem had been destroyed by them to the extent that, I couldn't imagine they were jealous of me one iota. But, I mean, I certainly think there's some truth to that old adage of um, hurt people hurt people. So I don't know if they had some insecurities in their own background or um, that was the kind of behaviour that had been modelled for them at home. I I'm not really sure, but, yeah, it's it's hard for me to feel magnanimous even now, even though through therapy myself, I can understand more about trauma and more about what motivates people to act in certain ways. Um, yeah. The, the hurt 14 year old inside me still just thinks they were just horrible, terrible people who did it for fun. But I think also there's a bit of a herd mentality because initially for me, there was three girls that started it, but they soon whipped up, my entire year level to join in. So it was pretty intense. And, and, you know, that social hierarchy aspect of especially early high school where you just want to be seen to be on the side of the, you know, the tastemakers, the popular people, the ones who call the shots. Um, I think, I don't know, you just, you, you're quite weak willed when you, you teen, you're a teenager. It's so hard to say, no to things um, because you want to fit in because you know there but by the grace of God you know if you're not doing it chances are it's going to be done to you so 
in an intellectual sense, I can kind of forgive all that. But as I said, the, the, the hurt little teenager inside me still thinks, if I saw you in a pub, I'd throw a beer in your face. <laughs> Outside of school, Laura, during those years, you know, early teens, what, what role did writing uh, play for you? It was massively important um, because it actually gave me my first career break, I suppose you would call it. Um, so in South Australia, in uh, must have been 1995, 96, News Corp um, started a, a youth newspaper. I'm not sure if they did it in other states or if SA was kind of the, the testing ground for it, but it was called Y, as in the letter Y for youth. Um, and it was put out under the auspices of Messenger Newspapers, which was the um, network of like community newspapers. Like we have the Blue Mountains Gazette. Um, it was a similar thing. Um, they all were put out under that Messenger banner. And it was the, all the editorial staff were high school students. Um, we decided all the content. We did all the writing and interviewing. Um, we, we put this whole thing together and it was a free monthly paper that was distributed through schools. And I was fortunate enough to um, be selected to, to be on the writing staff. Like it was unpaid and everything, obviously, but we worked with actual reporters and sub editors that were working for messenger. So it was essentially like an internship. And what was really great for me was that I then had a whole bunch of um, clippings to include in my application for a cadetship on the advertiser, which is Adelaide's daily newspaper. So I um, didn't go to university to do journalism. I did a cadetship straight out of high school. I, I turned 17 in the October and I started working there in the January. So I was a baby thrust straight into this, um, you know, I always say it was a baptism of fire, this world of much older hard-boiled journos that had been there since the hot metal days and it was amazing I just I loved every bit of it and I'm so grateful for it but I started on that Y newspaper at 15 and I got my cadetship at 17 so not only did it give me that professional leg up it also gave me something really to focus on outside of the sort of very tumultuous time that I was having at high school so without that I don't know if I would have um, got my cadetship or if I would have been able to, to go into journalism, who knows, but I'm very glad I did. Was there a sense of, you know, you're out there literally paving your career as a 15, 16 year old. Was there a, an element of kind of sticking the two fingers up to the people at school and saying, look at me, look what I'm doing with my life. Or, or do you think that at that age, like that doesn't even come into people's uh, thought process that they didn't really care for what you were doing outside of school? I didn't think they cared a jot about me or what I was doing or what I would go on to do. So I was proud of the work that I was doing and I was very glad to have it because I knew that it would stand me in good stead for the career I wanted to have. And I, I also, I should point out as well, I felt even then incredibly lucky to know what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, so many young people don't ever have that clarity and that's fine. You know, they find their way and, and hopefully they, they find some sort of career path that they enjoy, or at least that pays well, if nothing else. Um, but I was so glad to have that single-minded focus, especially while all of that other stuff was going on, because it did give me something to focus on and plan and research and hope for really. Um, because really my, my self-esteem had taken such a battering and I just felt so bad about myself in every other way, but I knew I could write. And I knew that one way or another, 
that would be my career, whether I went to university and then tried to break into it or whether I got this cadetship, which ultimately I did, I knew that was the path I wanted to walk. So yeah, it didn't really enter my head what anybody thought about that, which is kind of weird because the rest of my brain space was consumed with what they thought about me and what I could do to make myself more likable to them. And, oh God, it was just so much drama. (laughs) Do you think, Laura, that whilst not ideal, those tough school years helped develop a sense of resilience that you were able to, you know, as a 17 year old start as a journalist, did, did you kind of have a bit of a, um, I'm trying to think of the word. Did, did you have that yeah, resilience ingrained from that school experience? I think I must have. I don't think I probably would have thought of it in those terms, but um, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to have the career that I wanted to have. Like I knew I was smart enough. I knew that I had to work and I had to network and I had to, as much as I hate this word, hustle to make it happen. But also when you're 17, even if you've had trauma, um, you still to an extent tend to think that you're like 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You really do kind of believe that the world is at your feet. Um, So it spurred me on for sure. Um, Yeah. I'm sure it did give me a a feeling of resilience or, or, or those adaptable ability skills. Um, because even once I become a, became a journalist, there was, you know, things that were really hard, you know, some stories that I had to cover and really gruesome, sad stuff. And I had to learn how to be able to get through it and do those things. So yeah, I've been asked before, you know, if you had to do it again and if you could get rid of that experience, would you? Um, and I think the expectation is that I'll say, oh, of course not, you know, because it made me the person that I am today. I would, I would get rid of it, to be honest, because it was horrible. And as I said, it has lingering effects now that I could do without. <laughs> but in terms of giving me that real laser focus, that almost single-minded determination, yeah, I have to admit that it, it, it was valuable in that sense. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Your experience as a journalist, you had 10 years in-house for newspapers and magazines. As you said, you started with the advertiser at the age of 17. Um, You also went on to win National Young Journalist of the Year in the early 2000s. What was that decade of of being a journalist like for you? Did you you love the experience? Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And even, you know, now I catch myself kind of lamenting the death of print media and just because, I mean, I can see why it's happened um, and, you know, why it's not as relevant now, but then it was so important. And especially in a city like Adelaide, people call it a big country town and it really kind of is in a way. And the advertiser, people love to complain about it, but it sold like almost a million copies every Saturday. And um, 
it was enormously influential um, in the city and the way the city saw itself and all the rest of it. And just the buzz of working on a daily newspaper, God, it was so thrilling. And um, the stuff that I got to report on. And then I, I got to be fashion editor and I was youth affairs reporter, the, the first one the newspaper had ever had to be writing solely about young people and youth issues. And it was amazing, you know, and then I went um, to London, which I'm sure you'll touch on uh, in, a, in a bit, but I worked for weekly newspapers there. And I also did some shifts on one of the big, um, the Daily Mirror, one of the big tabloids and the threat, there's nothing like the thrill really. Um, and even now I sometimes think, oh God, I'd love to work for a daily newspaper again, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. And I loved every minute of it. Do you look at those first couple of years at the advertiser, was there a particular person who either took you under their wing or that you looked up to that really helped form your work as a journalist? There was one person who was very um, important to me. And in fact, she wasn't at the advertiser. Um, but she was a PR person or like a publicist. Um, she worked with a lot of local um, businesses. She also did PR for sort of um, a few government agencies. And she just decided that I was the bee's knees and that she was going to take me under her wing. And I'm still friends with her to this day. And she was amazing. Just that kind of um, the belief that she had in me and, she was always introducing me to everyone. I mean, she knew everybody in Adelaide and um, her name, it was Judith Bleachmore then. Um, Judith Grimmett she is now. But um, yeah, she, she was enormously important to me and I'm incredibly grateful for, you know, the doors that she opened for me. And it, she was also really important because at the newspaper itself, as I mentioned, it was a lot of these kind of old newsmen who'd been reporters since the fifties and they were a bit hard bitten and heavy drinkers. And they thought all cadets were sort of young upstarts who knew nothing. And, um, I remember on my first day of cadet training, um, the, the journo who was our sort of head trainer, he'd been there forever. And he said, the only time you'll ever get any feedback from your superiors is if you've messed up. Um, you know, so don't expect pats on the back kind of thing. And that was true. You know, you, you never, ever got a kind word from anyone. So you never really got a sense of how you were doing. Um, I mean, you could tell from, you know, whether your stories got a run and, and where they got a run in the newspaper. But so to have someone like Judith in my corner telling me that I was doing really well was massively important. Um, and that's why I'm very grateful to still call her a friend so many years later. <laughs> As you touched on, you went and spent time in London writing for the major tabloids over there. On a personal level, what did you what did you learn from that experience being overseas and away from home? Um, I learned that I'm a really independent person, <laughs> um, and that I actually prefer, I suppose, to go it alone. Um, I like to forge my own way. Um, I actually went to London with my boyfriend at the time and then we promptly broke up when he took another a job in another city without telling me. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> we're still friends. It's okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was suddenly kind of, you know, the whole experience as I thought it would be suddenly went out the window. We were going to get a flat together and work in London and all of a sudden he's not in London and I'm in a share house with four other Aussies and, you know, making my own path. And it was amazing. I just had the best time. 
um, you know, I went to London for 12 months as all Aussies do. And I stayed for five years. Like that was, I was just having such a good time and you know, the, the proximity to Europe and all that sort of thing. I actually look back now and think, how did I afford it? Because I didn't earn that much money. My rent was insane, but I always had money for like a weekend in Paris or I must've just been much more frugal than I am now because now I never have money. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. Really amazing. At that time you're in one of the biggest cities in the world, you know, and there's so much history, um, especially in writing and literature in a place like London. Did you feel like the world was at your feet? I did. Yeah. Um, and once I got over the shock of suddenly finding myself kind of single and friendless in one of the biggest cities in the world, I realized that, you know, it was an enormous opportunity and I would kind of take myself off for a weekend and, go to parts of London by myself to just explore them. And um, yeah, it was great. I felt like I could do anything and I didn't have to, I wasn't beholden to anyone. I didn't have to check in, you know, I didn't have to tell my mum when I'd be home. <laughs> it was great, you know. And were there moments where you, you almost pinch yourself? You think the, the transition from those traumatic years at school to being in London as a journalist and, you know, living, living your best life, did you kind of stop and be like, wow, what a, what a journey at that point? I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were specific things that used to make me just kind of catch my breath every time. Like my first job in London was working for the Condé Nast, which publishes Vogue and um, Tatler and, you know, all those huge high profile magazines. I worked in on the production side rather than on the editorial side, um, which I didn't really enjoy because it's very detail oriented and that's not me. <laughs> but Vogue House is a, you know, a famous building in, in publishing in the UK. And that was where my office was. And it was around the corner from Piccadilly. And Piccadilly is just the most beautiful street. It's just got this sweeping bend and all these like Georgian terrace buildings. And every time I got off the tube and I looked down Piccadilly and I saw that, that bend off into the distance, I was like, what, <laughs> how, how, how is this my life? You know, it was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. What advice would you have for other people of any industry, but you know, early twenties out of school, around travel, obviously where the world's at at the moment, that's a little bit tough, but generally speaking, how important do you think that is for, for any young person to spread their wings and be put out of their comfort zone all around the world? I just think it is so, so important. Um, in fact, you know, travel, not everyone's interested in doing it. Um, obviously it's not for everybody or, and there's lots of people that would love to travel, but can't for whatever reason. But there's a part of me that's a little bit, I don't know, suspicious almost of somebody that has no interest in the world beyond their, their bubble or, you know, their immediate circle. I always think, why don't you have any curiosity? Like, why doesn't it occur to you to wonder how other people live? Um, and you don't necessarily have to travel to have that curiosity and to indulge that curiosity but it certainly helps and it's a lot of fun. Um, it's interesting now because I've got a six-year-old daughter and my husband's English, so she has a British passport. And the thought of her wanting to up and move to England at 21, which is what I did, 
fills me with horror. <laughs> but I, I think, of course, she should do it. You know, she must do it if she wants to, and I hope she does, because it's just so valuable in shaping your worldview and just, you know, giving you an understanding of the fact that, and I mean this in a good way, but that, you know, you're, you're kind of insignificant that, you know, that, and I actually find that a really comforting thought um, because the world is massive and whatever drama is consuming me at any given moment means nothing really in the scheme of things. And had I not traveled, I don't think I would have arrived at that worldview. <laughs> I think it's a good point you raised there, Laura, around that, that importance of being grounded. And I know on a personal level, I spent a few years traveling and working in America and it was that sense of insignificance which is hugely important because growing up in for me in the Blue Mountains it's a small area and um, until you step outside of your comfort zone and go beyond even Sydney as a place you don't know what else is out there so I know for me personally it was it was great to know that I'm just a small part of this bigger picture but it's almost yeah. refreshing and it takes a bit of a weight off your, off your shoulders as well. So I think it's, it's, it's hugely important and I would agree. I think it's crucial for anyone you know, who can to get out there and see the world as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's, I mean, you, you know, you talk about being from the Blue Mountains and how it can be quite insular. Adelaide's exactly the same. I mean, a lot of the people that I grew up with married at 22 and, you know, built a house and, that's fine. And I'm sure they're very happy with their lives, but I know personally, I never would have been happy had that been my life. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been because that wouldn't have been my choice, but I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not at all criticizing anyone who wants to, to do that. But yeah, for me, I had to see what was going on beyond Adelaide. You know, I had to. <laughs> when you look at the skill set of a journalist and the attributes that go with, with the work. Professionally speaking, where did you experience the biggest growth whilst you were in London? Um, probably the second job I had. Um, so I was the features editor on a weekly suburban newspaper called the Croydon Advertiser. Um, and being the features editor, what that really entailed was looking after their entertainment supplement. So it was like a pull out, you know, sort of 20 page section in the middle of the, of the, newspaper um and it was just me so i had to plan it i had to edit it i had to write all the content um and i loved it i loved it so much because i was the boss of it i mean you know I, I i did have to run things by my editor obviously but he was really cool and whatever i wanted to do he was pretty much happy to let me do that but i was only like 23 or 24 when i got that job so it was an enormous responsibility and it was so much fun. And it was when it, it was instructive in that I learned that I very much enjoy being in charge <laughs> of the um, whatever project I'm working on, which is interesting now because having been kind of out of an in-house job for over a decade, I really feel like I'm sort of ruined now for conventional nine to five employment because I just, it's not that I can't collaborate, um, I've had some very fulfilling collaborations on, you know, various creative things, but for the most part, I want to do it the way I want to do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, it was a big growth period in terms of reveling in that autonomy. Um, 
and at first being quite cautious of, oh, is it this okay? And is that okay? And I worked there for two years. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, well, this is this, here you go. Here it is for this week, <laughs> you know, all done. Um, yeah, it was great. Laura, in 2009, you were forced into freelance writing. How did that occur? Um, so I was working um, for what was then ACP magazines. It's now known as Bauer. And I was working on a, a women's magazine title. I was the acting editor of it. Um, and I'd always wanted to try freelancing. Um, I, I guess it was that experience in London that made me just want to branch out on my own and do my own thing, cherry pick the kind of work that I did. But I hadn't worked up the courage to, to try it yet. And then my husband and I bought our first house um, on the northern beaches of Sydney. And we went toddling along to the bank, you know, all gleeful one morning and signed our mortgage papers. And then I went off to work and was promptly made redundant. <laughs> the same, like literally two hours later. So I kind of rang my husband and said, um, well, looks like I'm freelance now. <laughs> so I really threw myself into it. You know, I worked every contact I had. I drummed up, you know, every, I took every paying gig I was offered. Um, and, you know, I was pretty, I was successful at it. Um, until I had my daughter in 2013 and I consciously slowed things down, but continued to freelance after that. But 2009 to 2013, um, yeah, I was extremely busy. I wrote for pretty much every magazine, every like, you know, consumer magazine um, in Australia, it felt like sometimes. Um, I did shifts on newspapers. I did one-off editorial projects. I did copywriting. I did web stuff. It was really interesting, you know, creatively speaking, because I was writing about all kinds of different things. Um, and it was just really nice to have that sense of vindication that <laughs> I was forced to sink or swim and I swam. <laughs> you consider that moment, you know, that day, as you said, it was, it's by the house and then two hours later, you know, you're showing the door. Do you consider that a sliding doors moment that had that not occurred, you, you still could be in that position and, and sure it would have been fine, but you wouldn't, you may never have unlocked this freelancing life or do you think that was always kind of nagging away at you? Um, that's a really great question. I'm not sure if I would have been brave enough to jump into freelance had I not had that push. Um, I'd like to think I would have, but having just bought a house, I probably would have convinced myself I needed to stay in regular employment. And the interesting thing is if I had stayed in-house with magazines, I would have ultimately found myself being made redundant anyway, just because of the way the magazine industry is going. And who knows if it would have been as achievable to establish a freelance career five or 10 years down the track. Um, the interesting thing was when I was handed my redundancy that day, they did try to find me or they did offer me a deputy editor position on another ACP magazine. And I, you know, I talked about it a lot with my husband, like, Oh, we've just bought this house and should I be taking this job? And, I'm very fortunate that I'm married to the kind of person who says, no, you know, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. You know? Um, so he was very encouraging of me um, not taking the other job I was offered and, and going it alone instead. So there were lots of things. In fact, my whole life really, if it hadn't happened exactly the way it happened, I just don't think I would be here to be honest. Um, 
even, you know, when I was 10 years old, I had a dog, Robbie, my beloved first dog that was really mine. And um, he was run over and killed after I'd only had him for about a year. And I was so incensed that because the person who ran him over just left him to die in the street. And I was so furious that somebody would do that, that I wrote a letter to the advertiser um, sort of saying, how could somebody do this? And the editor, they not only published my letter, but the editor rang me up to say how much my letter had moved her. And um, she was very sorry about what had happened. And it was really the first time at the age of 10 that I had ever understood how powerful words can be and what an important thing it is to tell your story. So even that, although I would have loved to have had Robbie to a ripe old age, even had that not happened, who knew, who knows if I would have had that fire lit in my belly to pursue this the way I have. I don't know. You know something ingrained in you, Laura, just touching on the, the examples, it's, you know, the, the bullying experience at school, you know, seeing the world in London being made redundant. Do you think that when challenged that you prosper and thrive, do you think that's ingrained in you? Um, it probably is to some extent. Um, you know, just looking at past examples, I've tended to make lemonade out of lemons, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I've never really thought about it in those terms. I'm not sure why or, you know, or, you know, yeah, how or why I would have necessarily grown up with that as a, a key part of my makeup. But yeah, I suppose it is, to be honest. Your career as a writer moved into writing books uh, more recently, um, which, as you say, it was a childhood dream uh, to be out there and actually be a published author. Has there been a point as, uh, as an author where you think, that you, you know, you've made it, and I'll use inverted commas there, you know, that gratification that, you know, you, you've done what you've wanted to achieve? I mean, the day my first print book arrived in the mail, I cried like a lunatic because it felt momentous. It was like, this is it. Here it is. I'm holding it in my hands. And that was actually my third book. So I had published two novels already, but they'd both been published um, as ebooks initially. One of them did subsequently go into print, but it was the first time I had held a book that had my name on the cover. So that was definitely a wow moment. Um, you know, the first time I sold one of my books internationally was pretty amazing. Um, I remember seeing the cover of a Mexican edition of one of my books. And it was, I think it was the first time one of my books had gone into a foreign language edition. And obviously I couldn't read, I don't, sadly, I don't speak Spanish and I couldn't read a word of it, but I was like, oh my God, like people in Spain are going to read about these dogs. Like, yeah, it's crazy. I do sometimes have moments where I just think, am I allowed to have this? Like, you know what I mean? Like you sort of question how did I get so lucky, you know, but I also, I know I'm talented and I work hard. And so I know it's not dumb luck, but there are certainly moments where I just think, wow, I never, I never honestly believed this would be my actual full-time job. And here I am. It's crazy. <laughs> you touched on it in there, Laura, about the, the physical book, which, you know, there was probably a time, say 10 years ago, where we all thought that, you know, books were dying out, but you could argue that, you know, they've come resurging back and they're, they're stronger than ever. What is it about the physical book that you think draws people in? I mean, the smell of it has got to be up there. 
you know, I, the, God, the smell of a book. Actually, my six-year-old said to me the other day, I love the way books smell, mummy. I was like, me too, babe. <laughs> you got that from me. Um, I don't know. Well, for me personally, I love to be out at doggy of the pages and underline things and take notes. And it's a bit sacrilegious to write in books. I I still feel that even when people ask me to sign copies of my own books, I'm like, are you sure? But that's writing in a book. Um, But, and I like having them there to go back to as well. There's something really comforting about a book that you've read and loved. It's just that familiar thing that you can pick up when you need, I don't know, some sort of connection with a past you or I don't know, that sounds a bit woo woo, but they're comforting. They're like old friends, I think. You've now published nine books. And as you said, the 10th one isn't far away. The themes and the storylines behind these books, are they all related or do you look at them independently? Um, That's a good question. So um, three of my books are novels. They're all, those three are all kind of romantic comedy type novels. And then I've written six nonfiction books, which are all um, collections of stories about amazing dogs because I'm a a vowed crazy dog lady. Um, And each of those books is themed. So the books themselves are not related to each other, but the stories in each book are all themed. So the book that's coming out um, on the 1st of December is called Extraordinary Old Dogs. So all the stories in that book are about senior dogs that have done amazing things. But even with my novels, there's always a strong dog connection. (laughs) So they're not about dogs, but they're about people who love dogs or people whose lives have been influenced by dogs. So for example, in my second novel, which is called The X Factor, EX Factor, um, the heroine of that book is a dog trainer for film and television. And she has like four dogs. And one of the dogs turns out to be very important in kind of um, helping her deal with some unresolved grief and some other issues that she has. And then my third novel is called two weeks till Christmas and both the hero and the heroine of that book are vets. Um, And so there's always dogs everywhere in all my books. (laughs) So you could call that a theme, I suppose, running through, through them. (laughs) And the novels, Laura, is the inspiration, does that come from, you know, you're touching on personal experiences or is it just your imagination running wild? It's a bit of both. Um, the first, my first novel is called Be My Baby. Um, that was inspired by an experience that I had, which was becoming godmother to a friend's baby daughter when we were both only 22. Um, the story is not based on that because it's fiction, but that certainly gave me the, the kernel of the idea. Um, what if a, a child-hating kind of uh, urbanite suddenly finds herself um, having to assume partial responsibility for the well-being of a child. Um, but the second two novels were purely imagination. So the second one, The X Factor, is about um, a, an average suburban woman who falls in love with the world's biggest movie star. And he has recently broken up from the world's second biggest movie star. And, of course, everyone is comparing this new ordinary girl with the super Hollywood starlet that came before her. And what actually inspired that was Pierce Brosnan, of all people. Um, I don't know if this happens to him in the American media, but in the Australian media, anytime there's a story about Pierce Brosnan and his wife, Keely, there's always a mention of his first wife, Cassandra, who passed away from cancer. And I'm, I've just found myself thinking, what must that feel like if you're Keely Brosnan? that you can't be mentioned or you can't be photographed with your husband without his, his, you know, um, late wife being brought up. 
what, what must that do to you? So that was where that idea came from. Um, and then the third novel, uh, Two Weeks Till Christmas, the one about the vets, that was actually a really interesting how that came about, that story, because my editor at Penguin just rang me up and said, oh, we need a Christmas romance book. We want to do something about vets. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yes, please. That's, you know, so up my street. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, otherwise I probably, you know, I might not have written that one of, of my own accord. <laughs> and with the nonfiction books, as I said, centred around you know, real-life dogs out there doing amazing things, was that a light bulb moment for you? Or is, again, is that something you'd, you'd been thinking about for a while and it was just a matter of ex executing it? Well, that one also came from the publisher, interestingly. Um, so my editor at Penguin at the time, she's, um, she actually works in the States now, so she's not with the company anymore. But she, although she edited fiction, so that was how I'd come to work with her on my novels, she also worked with one of the the bigger commercial imprints that did a lot of nonfiction. And she was tasked with putting out some kind of inspiring dog book. And she didn't know anything about dogs. So she didn't even really know where to start, but she knew that I love dogs. So my reputation as a crazy dog lady preceded me. And she got in touch and said, oh, you know, we want to do a, a nonfiction dog book, something inspirational. Is that something you'd be interested in? And I just about fell off my chair. I mean, like being asked, do I fancy writing a book about my true love dogs? Like, yes, I definitely want to do that. <laughs> so I came up with a bunch of different concepts. I think about 10 different um, ideas, pitched them all. Um, they picked one and I went with it. Uh, that was Incredible Dog Journeys. That was my first dog book in 2016. So that's all about dogs that um, found their way home or, you know, traveled some great distance to get back to their people or, you know, lots of really lovely inspirational stories. And that sort of sparked, I guess, what I, what I do now, because I've now my sixth one, my sixth dog book is about to come out and I've sold my seventh one, which will be out next year. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's pretty amazing the way it's all panned out, to be honest. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. The, the non-fiction books, there's that journalistic streak to it, I guess, as a, a matter of kind of researching and uncovering these stories. Whereas the novel, as you said, it, it's much more probably creative. Do you find that you are drawn to, to one or the other? Um, I certainly find that fiction is much easier to write for me um, because I don't have to research. I can just make it all up. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you do have to fact check things, but for the most part, it's whatever comes out of my brain. Um, I mean, I love writing about dogs. I just love it. So I'd probably have to choose that at the moment, um, even though it is harder and there's a lot more work that goes into it. Um, I've got to find the stories. I've got to interview all the dog owners. And that's a really interesting proposition because I'm often asking complete strangers to talk to me about the worst day of their life because 
inspirational stories usually come as a result of something awful that's happened. So people have to put a lot of faith in me um, to tell their stories properly and to treat them respectfully. And I never lose sight ever of what an enormous privilege it is to have people do that. And I love that I have become really good friends with a lot of the dog owners whose pets I've written about. And, you know, that when their dogs pass away, I'm like the first person they tell. And it's just, it's really incredible to me that, I mean, you know, it's actually not that incredible because the bond that, that dog people have <laughs> not only with their dog, but with each other is really universal. So it's not entirely surprising, but it is wonderful. Um, and I never forget how lucky I am to be doing it. Looking at the creative process or just the process generally of writing, you know, we had Jodie McLeod on the podcast uh, earlier on this year, you know, and you're close with Jodie as well. And she spoke about for her, it's a discipline thing. It's, you know, if she can do 20, 20 minutes a day or half an hour a day of just pen to paper or, or typing on the, the keyboard, do you have a similar process? Do you need to build in that routine or is it a matter of almost waiting for that creative wave that people talk about? I am the worst person in the world to talk about creative process because I just don't really have one or I do have one, but it's chaotic and it doesn't work for me, but I seem utterly unable to change it and replace it with something better. Um, I work in a very haphazard fashion I mean, I'm, I'm organized in some respects in that I do all my research and all my interviews first, and then I start writing. So I'm not writing at the same time as doing, um, as interviewing my dog owners and that sort of stuff. So that I'm quite regimented in that. But then when it comes to the writing, oh, I'm all over the shop. Like it's, I'm, I'm an Olympic gold medal winning procrastinator. You know, I said earlier that writing is who I am and I can't not do it. But if I can do anything but physically sit in my chair and type something into my laptop, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> like, I don't know why I'm like this, but every single time I start a new book, I promise myself that this time it will be different. <laughs> this time I'll be really organized. And it just, I'm, I'm never that way. And I, you know, to an extent I'm like, oh, well, I've got a small child and I've got all these dogs and I have to be you know, ad hoc in my approach, but I don't really, those are just excuses. My editor did once say to me, just accept that this is your process, that this is how you work. Like stop trying to fight it and just understand that this is who you are as an author. But that didn't make me feel any better, funnily enough. So my process is, I don't know, procrastinate, then panic, and then a book comes out. <laughs> It's an interesting point around the procrastination because uh, Greg McCowan, an author, talks about write you know write two bad pages a day. That's kind of his mantra, and that will equate to you know good pages of writing. And um, you know uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about you know just sitting around, you know scribbling, browsing for seven hours of the day, but then you hit three hours of kind of gold towards the end. Do you do you think there's an element of perhaps 60% as an example is just not going to be good stuff to get to that good 40%? Um, that's a really interesting question because for me, I'm not the type of writer who does what some people call a vomit draft. You know, I don't expect my first draft to be bad. I expect it to be as good as I can make it. 
Um, and I think that's because of my journalism background, because working for a daily newspaper, you couldn't draft. You had to write fast. You had to write brief. You had to write correct and you had to hit your deadline. So you had one chance essentially um, to make it right and to make it good. And I, th I definitely think that colors how I um, approach my books as well. So, and also because I'm such a terrible procrastinator, I usually don't have enough time. I don't have the luxury of drafting because I literally have to write it and send it to my editor the same day. Um, but I also think it makes me a better writer because I'm used to editing as I go. Um, so I'm, my editor does say to me that he enjoys my manuscripts because they're always clean. There's not much that has to be changed. Um, and I do think that that's the journalist in me who refuses to die. <laughs> what advice, Laura, would you have for, you know, prospective writers who maybe they're looking to put their first book out or their first blog or the first article, what points would you pass on to them just to get the ball rolling? Hmm, that's interesting. Sometimes I find it hard to kind of think about what it is that I do just because I've been doing it for so long and it feels so automatic. Um, but I guess the thing, which probably sounds completely counterintuitive given what I've just said about my own cre creative process, but you have to actually write the thing. And um, a lot of people, I see them saying, what course should I do? And, you know, I'm going to look around and I'm going to query agents and I'm going to think about what publishers would publish the book when it's finished. And I'm like, Oh, cool. How much have you written? Oh, I haven't started it yet. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. You could have all the education in the world and a lot of writing courses are very good, but a lot of them aren't. So you've got to be careful where you spend your money. That's definitely a tip I would, I would give, but you just have to do it. Even if you don't think you know what you're doing, just do it. And you can always employ an editor or a mentor down the track, get, um, you know, beta readers to cast an eye over it and tell you what they think. But, and certainly, you know, we were talking earlier about how the experiences that I had in high school led me to not put myself out there creatively for a really long time. And I would definitely caution against that. You know, I, I would say, try to be brave let someone else read it, even if it's your spouse or your best friend or your postman or whoever, you know. Um, and even if you don't want feedback from them, you know, just knowing that someone else has got eyes on it um, makes you braver, I think, as a writer. Yeah. Laura, you've lived with anxiety and depression. When were you aware um, of the impact that that was having on your life? Um, it was about, well, first of all, let me say I have had anxiety my entire life. Um, but it's only with the benefit of the psychotherapy that I've been having in my later life that I've able, I've been able to see that it's been a lifelong thing. And in fact, it's a lifelong thing for most people who, who have it. Um, I realized it was starting to have an impact. I mean, it's always been there and I've, it's always been hard to deal with. But about two years ago, I started having panic attacks and I was getting nearer my 40th birthday. And I just thought, you know what, what if I'm halfway through my life? What if I've got another 40 years, if I'm lucky, I don't want to spend that next 40 years feeling the way that I've felt in my life up to this point. 
So I really made a conscious effort to take my mental health um, in train, as it were, and just start doing things that I knew would help. Um, so medication, for example, I had always resisted the, the idea of uh, taking anti-anxiety medication because of the stigma attached to that. I didn't want to be like the girl that was on um, Prozac or whatever, but I just thought if I've got a headache, I take Panadol. This is the same thing, you know, this is my health and there is medication that could potentially help me feel better. So I started taking anti-anxiety medication and it was a revelation. It made me feel so much better so quickly that I can't believe it took me 38 years <laughs> to do it, um, to get onto it. But also um, I, I do psychotherapy now and um, things like uh, running. You know, I've been a runner for close to 20 years, but always more for like fitness and like keeping in shape and all the rest of it. But I've started to really look at my running as a more meditative thing, um, you know, a tool in my mental health toolbox. Um so yeah, it just all came to a head and I just realized that I thought I had been managing it and I really hadn't. It had been managing me and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in that situation. Where, where did you first find help, Laura? Was it GP, husband? Was there, was there a point where it's kind of, okay, I need to go and talk with someone about this? Yeah, I went to my GP first of all. Um, I had briefly had some treatment for anxiety about 10 years prior and the GP that I had then was massively helpful. Um, but I didn't persist with it. You know, I thought I was fixed. <laughs> so I didn't bother continuing with any of the stuff that I did back then. Um, so yeah, in the first instance, this time I went to my GP and she actually referred me to a psychiatrist, which was great because... Um, you know, you can access psychology through a mental health plan um, where you get 10 sessions, I think, with a psychologist that are covered by Medicare. Um, but psychiatry, I don't believe is covered. I, I could be wrong on that. I'm not 100% sure. But I know I had to pay to see my psychiatrist. But psychologists can't prescribe medication. So to get, um, you know, that prescription happening. I needed to see a psychiatrist. And so she was really helpful. She prescribed uh, the anti-anxiety uh, medication. She recommended psychotherapy as opposed to other types of therapy, because there's all different schools of psychology and psychotherapy. So she told me the one that she thought would be most beneficial to me. And I found an amazing local therapist. Um, so I really feel now like I've got this team of people um, who are there to help me. Um, and it's awesome. And, you know, as well as the ongoing support of, of my husband and my family and my friends, um, it's pretty great once you realize that you can tell people how you feel and like, it's going to be okay. The world won't implode. They'll help you if you ask them to. <laughs> and what kind of clarity and reassurance did that provide, Laura? You know, when you were able to talk about, you know, acknowledging that there, there was a problem. How, how much, I guess, relief did that provide to you? I can't even quantify it. I mean, it was just immeasurable. Um, it was truly like the weight of the world had been lifted. Um, and not just because the medication altered the chemistry of my brain and made me feel physically better, because that's the thing as well. I mean, anxiety is um, 
a mental illness, but it's also, it has incredible physiological manifestations. So a lot of those, you know, the churning stomach and the, like the constant tight shoulders and all of that stuff went away or didn't go away, but it drastically reduced. Um, so I felt physically so much better and just, yeah, knowing that, you know, as I say, you can put it out there and you won't be shunned, <laughs> you know, um, you can carry on and, and still be productive and still be creative and still have good things happen to you. And, um, and if you stumble or you have bad days, you now, you get the tools to know how to cope with those a whole lot better. So it's pretty great. We're seeing the prevalence of, you know, poor mental health, you know, rising and rising around the world, which is probably, you know, a combination of on the negative side, it's increased social media and increased expectations. But on the positive side is people talking more about it and willing to go and you know, get checked from their GP. What, what advice would you have for someone who, you know, like you said, perhaps something they know just isn't quite right or something's not quite sitting right. What advice would you pass on to them? I mean, it's a bit trite to say, just reach out, you know, because not everybody is in the position. Not everybody does have um, a supportive spouse or, you know, a loving family or lots of friends that will support them. So I would never just say, you know, I would never just say that blanket, you know, talk to somebody, but I would say find a professional. Um, your GP is a great place to start. You can see a psychologist. I mean, you, as I say, you can get the mental health plan that will cover some of the cost, but you don't have to go that way. You can just find your own psychologist if you want to um, find somebody that you're comfortable with, that you trust um, because safety is such an important thing, not just physical safety, but putting yourself into an environment where you know, where you can feel safe. Um, that's such a, such a key part of it. Um, but I just, I guess my advice would be, you don't have to feel that way because that's what I thought for so long. Oh, this is just the way my brain works. This is just the way I feel. And then I got to that point of thinking, well, I don't want to feel like this. This is terrible. Like <laughs> this can't continue. And then I was like, Oh, wait, there are people whose job it is to, to help me feel less like this. So yeah, understand that it's not weak to reach out for help, find somebody that you can trust and know that it can, you can feel better and you deserve to feel better. As we've talked about, and also, sorry, if I could just interrupt you for one second. The other thing I wanted to say is, especially for creative people, um, there is this weird perception that you have to be miserable in order to create something worthy. And I would just say that is utter, utter bollocks. Happy people make beautiful things just as much as people with mental health issues do. Um, so if you're worried that seeking help for anxiety or depression or any other mental illness will somehow take away your creativity, don't be. Um, it, cause it won't, because that's in you. That's not dependent on, on, you know, whatever your brain chemistry is doing. <laughs> it's actually a great segue, Laura, cause I, I was going to ask that, did you find that once you, know, you started that treatment, did, did it unlock a few things for you? with your writing, did you have a bit more clarity, energy in the work that you were producing? Um, 
not necessarily because I'd always, you know, I love it so much what I do anyway, that I'd always had that sort of passion for it. I suppose in one sense, I didn't personally feel quite so devastated, I guess, by the stories that I was telling because, um, you know, if you have empathy for people and if you're a sensitive person, then when someone's telling you about this awful thing that happened to them or this wonderful thing that their animal did for them, I mean, God, the number of times that I've just been in floods of tears while interviewing people because I can feel it. You know, I can put myself in their shoes and imagine what it was like. Um, so I, I'm perhaps better able to, um, what do they say? Regulate my emotions, I suppose. Um, maybe that makes me come across as a little more professional. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I get better um, responses from people because I'm slightly more analytical, perhaps. I'm, I'm, I'm less kind of involved in a truly visceral way with what they're telling me. Um, but in terms of, you know, the passion for what I do, that, that hasn't changed in the slightest. It's been an incredible journey for you to this point. Laura, do you look back and consciously reflect on, you know, there's been some amazing triumphs, but some immense challenges. Do you often stop and pause and look back on that journey? Yeah, I do. Surprisingly, quite a bit. Um, And my husband and I often say, because the way we met each other was so random, that if either one of us had ever done anything slightly differently, we wouldn't have been in the same place at the same time. We never would have met each other. And I feel a bit like that about my career as a writer, uh, as an author as well. Um, you know, as I said earlier on, if I hadn't lost my beloved dog when I was 10 and written a letter about it, if I hadn't been tortured for four years by the mean girls in my school um, and therefore been so focused on getting out of there and, and doing the things I wanted to do, who knows? Um, it feels pretty amazing in terms of you know what's happened and and how it's all unfolded and I'm very glad that it's unfolded the way it has because I really truly love what I do and along the same lines do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves in the sense that do you feel the path is laid out for us or that every single decision we make shapes where we end up definitely that we create ourselves for sure um because although I said I wanted to be an author and I am an author, it's not, it hasn't, you know, been a point A to point B kind of, you know, it's been a zigzag (laughs) getting here and the things I write about aren't necessarily things that I would have imagined myself writing about and other things I've got going on, you know, like I'm doing a PhD in English now that, you know, never occurred to me that I would take that on. And that's about true crime, which is something completely different for me. So, and also as well, the, the work that I've been doing kind of personally on, on, you know, getting my mental health in hand and just kind of, it's a bit kind of vomity, but like growing as a person, <laughs> um, that's all really, a really conscious thing. So I, I really feel that I'm creating myself in that sense for sure. And for you, there was a move to the Blue Mountains uh, about three years ago uh, from the Northern Beaches. What change has that meant for for you and your family? Oh, God, it's amazing. I love it so much here. I never want to live anywhere else. I mean, 
um, just on a practical sense, we have a lot more space. Um, we've got a larger home. We've got larger, um, like a bigger garden. Uh, we acquired another dog. <laughs> it's lovely and quiet and peaceful. You know, I can write with just the sound of bird song in the background instead of buses roaring past my front door like they used to down in Sydney. Um, but the other thing I love is the arts community up here. And I'd heard about this kind of fabled Blue Mountains arts community before I came up here and thought it sounded wonderful, but it's so much better than I ever even anticipated. Like people are so welcoming and everyone's happy to share their knowledge and their expertise. And people are so enthusiastic about what they're doing and what you're doing and working together and, you know, supporting each other. And it's just amazing. I mean, I never ever would have started my PhD had I not moved up here because it's about a murder that happened in the mountains in the 1840s. So I never would have heard that story if I didn't live here. So it's been incredibly, um, what's the word, I suppose, expansive in terms of my practice as an author and just the way I think about the arts and, and just feeling so welcomed into this community. It's just, it's just been amazing. As we spoke about, you've got a, a new book uh, on the way shortly and signed a contract for another one next year. What does the, the next six months or so uh, have in store for you? Um, so I'm starting work on my 2021 release, um, which has the working title of A Dog's Best Friend and will be all about um, real-life dogs that have best friends of other animal species. So that's going to be very sweet. And I just feel like in this, you know, hashtag corona apocalypse that we're all living in now it's just going to be so nice to just write something lovely and just think about friendship for a few months and you know so that's going to be great um, I'm also working really hard on my PhD I've been really embroiled in the research part of it spending a lot of time down in the New South Wales archives at Kingswood um, looking through musty old documents and oh god I just love it so much I'm such a history nerd um, so I need to start um, consolidating all the research into some some written form because the actual thesis it's not a traditional academic thesis I'm actually writing a true crime book about this murder so I need to get cracking on that um, and then my next book Extraordinary Old Dogs is out on the 1st of December so there'll also be a lot of media and publicity and events happening around that and I've also probably foolishly decided to do NaNoWriMo this month which for the uninitiated is National Novel Writing Month. And it's a global thing where participants try to write an entire novel in a month. And the reason I've decided to do that is I haven't written any fiction since my first, uh, my third novel, which came out in 2016, and I just really miss it. So I thought I'd give myself a bit of a kick up the bum and try and make two fictional people fall in love with each other again. <laughs> And Laura, as we said, there's been a number of great books already written and a few more to come. How do people find out more and purchase one of these books? Uh, well, um, all my nonfiction dog books are available in sort of all good bookstores um, and online as well. All the major, you know, uh, Booktopia, Book Depository, Amazon, all those places. Um, Extraordinary Old Dogs, as I mentioned, will be out on the 1st of December and that will be in shops everywhere. Um, I'm on social media. I'm at Laura Greaves author on Instagram. And I also have a Facebook author page, which is Laura Greaves writes books. And I do have a website, www.lauragreaves.com, but it's currently down for maintenance, but it will be back up and running very soon. 
Laura, thank you so much for such a, an honest but also inspiring conversation. I really appreciate your time on the Passion and Perspective podcast and wishing you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender. 